Welcome one, welcome all to another developer interview here on the Xbox Expansion Pass. Today I am joined by Carlos Bordeaux, co-founder of Ace Team out of Chile, who just released their third person action game, Clash Artifacts of Chaos. I'm your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. Carlos, thank you for joining me today. Hello, thanks for having me here. Very excited to talk about the project. I'm excited to hear about your project. It certainly has one of the coolest visual styles uh, I've seen in a long time, and I'm so anxious to hear about it. Uh, but first, I think it'd be uh, prudent and wonderful if you would uh, let everybody know what your role is at Ace Team and uh, a little bit about the studio. Cool. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm one of the uh, game designers, at, uh, like the lead, one of the lead game designers. I have, I actually have a, the, the, the name of the studio is Ace Team because of Andres, Carlos, and Edmundo, which we are three brothers. Andres mm -hmm. is actually my twin brother, and we both work both in direction and uh, game design, so it's kind of a shared uh, role that we have. So I'm one of the co-founders. Uh, yeah, and we've been making games on on PC and consoles since around 2007, when we really started to do titles, you know, Clash, which actually has a lot to do with this title. So yeah, that's a little bit the short version. Super cool, super cool. I uh, I know Xenoclash is going to come up later on uh, during our topic because a uh, Clash of Titans is part of an extended universe, and I'm I want to hear about that. But first. Uh, for anyone that hasn't seen uh, Clash, it is one of the most stylized games that I've seen in a long time. And I'm curious, uh, how did you guys manage to create such a unique visual flair? And how do you describe the style? Okay, whenever we talked about the visual identity for the Xeno Clash games, and it goes, it's true for Clash 2. It's inspired on what was called back then in the 1980s, the uh, punk fantasy, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it was something that was more used and seen uh, back in the 80s when I would say fantasy uh, art was not so homogeneous like we've seen. Like the Lord of the Rings, I love the Lord of the Rings, but one of the th problems that I've seen over time is that uh, with the introduction of like of these super productions, which become very famous, you tend to see like everyone go for a, like a more uh, similar style. So all the dragons look kind of the same, all the wizards look kind of the same, the orcs are like, and the green goblins and that style. And I feel like in the 1980s, they were more, uh, the designs of fantasy were way more diverse. They There was an artist called uh, John Blanche, which was uh, one of the, for instance, he, he did the cover art for the magazine White Dwarf and, uh, well, many other projects, which he has been like the central uh, point of inspiration for, for us as artists. Um, so, yeah, um, with Clash, we wanted to achieve like the visual style of that type of art style. We're obviously taking a lot of from what we had done in previous games. But the, the particular thing that's interesting about Clash is that both the Xenoclash games, the previous ones, are very well known for their very chaotic, like surreal, like very crazy uh, designs. But uh, what's different about Clash is that we incorporated all that, like the the designs of our characters remain being like very outlandish and everything. But there was something that both previous Clash games did not have, and that was the rendering style was very traditional. It was like, uh, okay, we're basically using the shaders and everything 
like uh, basically specularity, ambient occlusion, and everything is treated just like you would see in maybe uh, any traditional game which is trying to achieve maybe photorealism or, or whatever. And that's definitely something we didn't want to do in with Clash. And it took a very dedicated amount of work and a long time. And Mundo's the lead, like a technical artist and art director of the studio. And we worked on this sort of like pencil catching style, visual style. And that, mm -hmm. that the, the, the combination of both, both those elements, I think, gives the game a, a visual identity, which is so unique. It is super unique. And I'm, you started to talk about this, and I'm curious, did you guys try other styles before settling on this one? Obviously, uh, Xenoclash has, has, has impact on it, but did you try multiple things for Artifacts of Chaos before settling on this one, or was this what you had in your mind from the get-go? There were actually two competing visual styles that we wanted to go for. So uh, for those of who are very familiar with our work, there's a set of maps in Rock of Ages 2, which are painted like in brush strokes type of art. You actually look at it, the, the, the levels, and they look like they're actually um, oil paintings. And El Mundo continued working on this visual style for uh, trying to develop it and make it look even more unique. And uh, at first, the idea was to see whether we were going to choose that specific style to go with the game. The problem mm -hmm. with it was that since the brush strokes are very like thick and it's, it feels like a, you look at the art that we produced for the prototyping, it looked even more unique in terms of uniqueness, but you would lose a lot of the details and the, and the, the, the little parts of the design because basically you have things like eyes and uh, little details on the characters, you couldn't really get them done with thick brush strokes. Mm -hmm. So we were super bummed about the, the fact that maybe, maybe we're going to have to let go this this style. So one of the first ideas, as soon as we started working on the pencil hatching style, which we were also very excited about, was that maybe the character was going to be, uh, we would have the game rendered in both styles simultaneously and we'd have to actually swap in between one another for game design purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as we realized the amount of work it was going to actually be to get the game running properly on both visual styles, it became pretty clear that we were aiming for something that was way too ambitious. And uh, we eventually had to basically say, okay, we can do only one of these two very well. Uh, we're going to have to choose one. And, and, and for the main reason being, Again, the, 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 the oil painting style was probably more, it's, it's something much more uh, different to anything you've ever seen. This one, mm -hmm. I've seen people compare it to like a little bit Borderlands and other games. Though I, I feel that's a, a bit not exactly what we did. Like mm -hmm. if you look, I, I feel like the videos don't do justice to the game because the compression of video actually, that's one of the negative things about the pencil catching style is that since you have a lot of line art, which is very um, like fine. No, no, fine and like noisy, mm -hmm. uh, video compression totally destroys the visual style of the game. Many people have, uh, have made comments after playing the game saying that the art of the game, the videos really do not do it uh, justice. 
So yeah, we went for basic, basically this style because it allowed us to keep a lot of very fine detail, which we wanted to obviously have in, in our, all our character designs and world designs. It's so interesting to hear you say that because to me, when I see the art style, I'm like, this is gorgeous and super cool. And the idea of, of that not even being the complete vision until you put hands on with the game is that much more enticing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been great. We even at some point decided maybe if we would have had more time, we would have wanted to maybe do some like flashbacks or cinematics or something where we would have wanted to do the brush strokes. But uh, the production of this game was really, really a race against the time in which uh, I think most people who see it would never even imagine that it was done by a studio uh the size we are we i mean we've grown over the years but i still think that the uh, even when we did xenoclash most people were very impressed about this uh, what the size of the studio was then and clash again was one of those experiences where we tried to do more than we, <laughs> than we were able to and we had to scale down stuff in order to get it to get it done well let's touch on that a little bit then what size is the studio and how long has has or was Artifacts of Chaos in development? Uh, around two years it was in development. Uh, Only two years? Two and a, two and a bit, uh, okay. but not that much. It actually, I mean, if you add the time that we prototyped stuff to sort of pitch the game, then it will extend and maybe we'll be getting closer to something more like akin to three years. But it's actually not that much. It, it is not the game that we've taken the most time uh, to make. The, the previous one, Eternal Cylinder, was actually a longer run that was more closer to three years. But we've mm -hmm. never been, we've never stayed on a game that long. Um, I don't know why, but it's usually that we have our production schedules tend to go from the absolute fastest we'll ever get is a year and a half. I don't think we've ever even get, gotten there, but maybe one year and... Uh, nine months and closer and the most that we've taken is, is around three years if you actually look at the history of the studio we look at how many games we produce it's pretty impressive i mean we've done we have like a, a release of a game almost every year and a half to two years because we also have some overlap between titles mm -hmm. so if you think about it eternal cylinder wasn't that far back then when we released it and then you see that we released this giant game uh, for us at least uh, clash and uh, it doesn't feel like a, enough time passed in order for a small studio to make it and for clash uh there's obviously you have growth and some reduction and you have some people assigned to the project and, and reduced but this is a like a 20-man studio like uh, we, we tend to grow and reduce our size 20 to 25 uh, that's not not much more than what you'll get in the amount of people who work on gotcha Gotcha. Yeah, you guys have a really cool history of uh, of game development because you have a, a larger extended universe that you guys have created. I, I think that's fair to say with the Xenoclash titles and, and Zenzoic uh, and such. But then Rock of Ages is something I think you guys are pretty well known for as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. I gotcha. Those are the two franchises which both have three games each. Basically, okay. we have three Rock of Ages and three Clash games and the other ones, I think we don't have any sequels in any of the other ones. The other ones are all unique. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's really cool. That's really cool. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, to me, that sounds so short. 
but it sounds like you guys enjoy moving from project to project. Is it is that a choice factor or is that the reality of an indie studio you need to get the next project? I would say it comes a little bit more with the reality that you have to be moving from one project to the other. That it is, um, um, I mean, you do have like to schedule your work for the amount of the budget that you're being assigned and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So we are very uh, responsible with the basically the planning of, of our projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to do the, the, develop our, all our projects on time, but we usually take a little longer. So you have to factor in that when, whenever you're 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 thinking about. And for the for a very long time, we've had sometimes a lot of overlap on the development of titles in between one another. In the case of Clash, the development of Eternal Cylinder actually extended way over what was originally planned. So we had a little bit of a problem there because uh, some of the, we had like for the last year of development of Eternal Cylinder, we had like this small team, very like uh, seasoned developers, like sort of finishing off the last details of Eternal Cylinder. And it was like, it felt like it it went into quite a big chunk of the development of uh, Clash, but uh, it, it really didn't get in the way, I would say, but but yeah, having two games in development is usually uh, uh, something that uh, happens a lot in the studio, mm-hmm. and uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> For listeners that don't know, the Eternal Cylinder, that is available on, on uh, PlayStation, Xbox, Windows, uh, and yes. you know modern consoles as well. But to me, it's got a really unique art style as well. Like that's weird in some ways, right? Uh, that definitely would I would say takes the number one spot for the weirdest game we've ever made. Uh, mm-hmm. Even considering how weird Clash is, uh, Eternal Cylinder, Eternal Cylinder, Eternal Cylinder does not have the visual rendering style, which is as unique as the one we did in Clash. But uh, like from a game design point of view, it's like absolutely nothing like any other game out there in the market. It's really, really something. Um, yeah, and creature designs are wild in that game. Yes, yes, it's very different to. Uh, I mean, the most the, the the closest thing people have linked it to is to Spore, mm-hmm. but the people who play the game will tell you it has nothing to do with Spore. It's it's very different. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, that brings me to a question that I suppose in in some ways relates to the Eternal Cylinder as much as it does clash Artifacts of Chaos. Uh, And that is, does art style impact design choices or do design choices typically come first? Like, which one comes first in that pecking order? Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that we actually do design prior to art given how much of uh, ASIM is known for the visual identity of our games. So mm-hmm. it almost feels like that we want to go and do something very like, uh, like, okay, this is, this is exactly what we want to do with the art of the game. So after that, we design to, we decide to sort of design something around it, but it's actually the other way around. A very good example could be, for example, uh, one of our not lesser known games, which I, I actually 
feel a bit, a bit sad because it's an amazing game. It didn't do as good as we would have wanted to, but it is, uh, is the Deadly Tower of Monsters, mm-hmm. which is a game where you play in this like a. It's played like your typical like top-down like dungeon crawler. That was sort of mm-hmm. the idea. But um, like the closest game you could link it to is like Bastion. You're playing up from a top-down. You have like mm-hmm. finding some monsters and stuff. But we wanted to do a game that, uh, unlike all these titles in the genre, it had mm-hmm. verticality in the design of the game. So we, we, we immediately thought about that it was going to be a game where you were going to climb this giant tower and... As you went climbing on the tower, you would actually get to see everything that you've been got, you've gone through. Like you would just be able to pop your eyes down and look, and you would see like all the progress that you've done. And we had no idea what sort of visual style we were going to do on the game. It was pretty clear that from a design point of view, we we're going to do something like that. And eventually, it came that we did like this very cheesy sci-fi sort of movie mm-hmm. thing where we're taking like a homage to the old uh, Planet of the Apes and King Kong, uh, like uh, the like the, the Flash Gordon, like this really sci-fi from the golden years of the cinema. And that was a decision that came afterwards. And if you would look at the game, you would say they definitely wanted to do a game which was about this era of filmmaking. And mm-hmm. then they decided to make, but it was actually the other way around. I'm looking at the trail of it right now. I had I apologize because I had never heard of it's this okay. game, <laughs> and it looks so cool. It's like it's just full of charm, and I feel like as I look at Ace Team's Pantheon, that is a, a fair and appropriate word. It's like every one of the games has this visual charm to it that suits its own style, um, yes. and I think that's kind of what you were alluding to is Ace Team being known for. Yes, that's yes. cool. That's something take a lot of pride in. That I would. That's that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, we had a question uh, from Anubis about, and he wrote in on Twitter asking about a couple of the design elements for Clash. But before we get to it, I was wondering if you could describe what type of game this is. And I asked that because I've heard this described as a third person action game, a first person uh, action, like, like martial arts game, a Souls like. Uh, and I'm curious how you describe your title. Okay, so there is definitely, I mean, it would be absolutely, I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's an influence of from software titles in the decision making of several elements in the design of Clash. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was for a reason, the reason that we knew we wanted to do a Clash game from a third person point of view, primarily and not uh, go again fully only first person. Now, uh, at first we were kind of scared about the, the, that because we knew that the fans had gotten used to basically two first person combat games, which they don't exist that much. Basically, third person combat games are much more popular and mm-hmm. have become much more of the norm. But uh, we felt that there was a lot of stuff from combat in third person that was going to be very difficult to translate into a first person only mode. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do the, we took basically some elements from the Dark Souls games, Mm -hmm. but a lot of what we took also was from uh, looking a little bit at the experience of the latest God of War games. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny looking at these like giant companies and you're like, like the small indie studio saying, hey, let's do a game, which <laughs> it is taking elements from these like massive uh, blockbuster titles. So, I mean, I know God of War is even much bigger than like from a, a budget and, and production values, uh, even though from software, but from software is like such a bigger company than us. I mean, we, we, we really felt like we were aiming for like like the stars. Um, and uh, one of the reasons is because basically it would be something new to explore for us that allowed us to innovate and give us our own unique take on these type of games. And I feel that we actually managed to do that by introducing a combat, like a game design mechanic that you do not see in these titles, mm-hmm. uh, which we can go a little bit more in depth. Basically, uh, which has to do with the canceling uh, mechanic, which you're taught at the very beginning of the game. And I feel that is an innovation that is something that we were allowed to explore because we did a third-person combat game. And mm-hmm. if we would have done first-person, it would have been maybe doing more of the same than we had done uh, in Xenoclash. I think people would have expected us to have done something that was more akin to what we had already explored. And we already mm-hmm. had two titles. So a, a, a lot of, of, of what makes us tick and what makes us want to do video games is to try to explore new ideas and innovations in game design. I think mm-hmm. we take most of our credit sometimes comes from the fact that we uh, come up with these very visual like worlds that are very unique. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, like the design for many of the things that we do is pretty far out there. Like maybe Clash is not the best example of something that's so different to everything else there. We, But we, I still feel that we did some very interesting in, innovations also with the dice game. Mm-hmm. But Eternal Soda, there's a game you can't compare to anything. And, and that's a really strong design decision. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's really cool. I hearing it from the mind of the developer i think is one of the coolest uh, aspects of of these things um i do want to get to anubis's question i don't want to leave sure. uh, him hanging uh he says could you go into more detail about the nighttime feature of recovering your body uh and how you kind of came up with that it reminds him of the wow graveyard in some ways but uh it, to me it's a little souls like in some ways that you recover things but also the nighttime element of it changes it a bit So could you talk about that for us? Okay, so this is one of those instances where a feature that got canceled turned into something else. Okay. So originally, so when, when I say that we were basically aiming for the stars and we were looking at things that we wanted to do in the original design of Clash that eventually became too much for the studio. One of them was multiplayer. Mm-hmm. So we were Clash was originally planned with a not a fully like co-op campaign. It was gonna be something like a light version of the invasions that you would see in Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. But what did that mean? Since we knew that we were gonna make a, sto- a game that from a so we're doing Dark Souls from one side. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm super like minimizing like the, 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 the but trying to, to get like in the mindset so people can understand why. So mm-hmm. from one side, we're doing Dark Souls. You get killed, you can be revived, 
and you can get buddies to help you sort of go back, find your body and, and, and fight a boss and help you out in difficult situations. But we're doing a game in which you're basically a, a character, a real character, like in, in all from software games, you're basically a shell for a, of a character because you can revive in this whole idea of magic. It would be like in God of War having Kratos die and having several Kratos running around and trying to beat a boss. I mean, it would look absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. you, you can't have like your main character be so well-defined and to be like a, someone with a narrative and, 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 and a, a backstory and everything. So um, we understood that if we were going to do multiplayer, the player was going to have to get into this kind of shell of a body, which was no longer the character, but maybe like, a, like an alternate version of him. So okay. we have to come up with this entire idea that the pseudo during the nighttime, he kind of sleepwalks and turns into this like ethereal form, which can be made of bone or wood or metal. Like he sees himself in these all these strange shapes. You can actually sort of customize your character and, and get uh, uh, like different body parts. So if you look at the nighttime version of the game, the customization of the character and, and you get and all the body parts that you find makes it feel much more like a Souls game because the characters, if you look at the variety of different characters that you can make the nighttime version of the game, it's much more akin to what you would see in, say, Bloodborne or whatever, any of the Souls games. But in the daytime, it's Kratos with his armors pieces. So, so like you have Pseudo, which is the main character, then you mm -hmm. have the samurai armor, the rock armor, the lightning armor, or, and, and you're basically putting like cool suits on top of the player. So we knew we had to do those two different things. Eventually, the multiplayer became too much of a challenge as we were getting near the end of the project. Mm -hmm. But it made sense. So it was the the whole nighttime thing would still it still worked independent of the need of having it be multiplayer. So with a little bit of repurposing, not that mm -hmm. much, uh, it became one of the central almost ideas and, and, and things about Pseudo, which gives, gives it a lot of mysticism and, and makes the character all that more uh, interesting. Uh, but I can definitely say that it's very, very unlikely that the, the duality between the nighttime and the daytime would have existed uh, were not that we planned the game originally to uh, a form of co-op mm -hmm. is that the trick when it comes to being on a timeline and and having a smaller team versus some of those triple a titles to make sure that work done even if you're not going to use it uh in the way it's intended the work done is not wasted oh my my goodness that that's the, like a score thing that we've done here at ace team like there's not a 3d model that you let go like not, not a precious polygon that is modeled in this studio that doesn't get if it's if it's not unliked it's repurposed mm -hmm. and 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 we don't drop it. I mean it's, it 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 has become so silly that the game launched uh, and there was a three D asset of a plant like these like intertwining like vine, vines that I knew never got into the game and it would stick on the back of my head like all the time. Like I'm talking about three static meshes. That I know where they are. I've seen them in the project, but I know they're in none of the levels. And it's like it's it's it's, it's it, I, I want to see them in the game because I don't want that work to go unused. <laughs> and we're actually working on now on New Game Plus, and 
Uh, one of the things we've been doing is that uh, helping like people navigate better to the world. We've been adding some like visual cues to help them through exploration because a big part of the, the game design was to go old school with the exploration. We don't have uh, waypoints and markers to, to tell you where to go. So that was uh, a bit of a challenge. And I, I, now that it's been like two weeks since the game, game out, came out, I said, ah, now I'm going to use those plants. <laughs> I, put mm. the, I put those 3D meshes in, in a level and they're going to appear in the next update. And I feel like like almost like a, a little relief that we actually use it. But we, everything that we do is like we feel like the secret to the success, I think, of the first Xeno Clash is that we planned for a much larger game and then we focused on what we were able to do. Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to realize the vision, which we were unable to achieve because we were too small, we were able to concentrate our efforts on what was cool about the project and made things work together. So um, I, I almost feel like some of the best stuff that sometimes you hear about come, or come around this way. I've read like uh, like Wikipedia stories about, for instance, how some of the like really great movies back from the, I'm, I'm a fan of some of, like the 80s and 90s and the 70s in, in terms of movies. But for instance, if you read the script of how the Gremlins, the first Gremlins movie was made, it was a horror mm -hmm. movie. It was supposed to be much more scary. And as they went along, they realized it wasn't going to work out. And they kind of repurposed it into this kind of like semi-suspense, but more of a like dark comedy thing. But that mm -hmm. wasn't the original plan. And I feel like that layer of allowing yourself to have a capacity for improvisation mm -hmm. helps you out during the project. And I think the AAA studios, being as large as they are, as soon as they get fixated with some design decisions or some scope, it actually has to go through so many people to change anything that you would have to have all the meetings and that you would have to maybe go to investors or whatever. I don't know that you would have to go and say, okay, we, we can't do this, but we can maybe creatively repurpose it for something else. I don't see it as easy to do in, in the larger studios. And I, I think that, that that's something that maybe not all indie studios can. Maybe there are indie studios that are very rigorous in the way that they plan things and they don't really change the things. And once they get into a certain mindset, they, they're not going to alter. But we're very fluid and we're very... Our projects tend to morph and change quite a lot during their development as we see what works and what doesn't. Gotcha. Man, that's 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 awesome. The you you mentioned New Game Plus uh, when you're talking about updates coming out, and uh, you also referenced like visual markers and such. But I'm curious, um, what is this? What is, every studio has their own process for player feedback. The way that, a way that they uh, figure out what's working, what's not. How do you guys handle player feedback or? or uh, bringing new features in or even just testing things that you like uh, and realizing that they work or don't work? I mean, each our games are so different that I feel that it's been almost an exploration process for each and every one of one, them that we've done differently. Um, I feel we actually made a mistake with Clash that we were able to correct very quickly after launch. Um, so if you actually play, play the game as it was exactly on launch, 
and then you play what's be, what we were able to very quickly address within the very few first few days of the launch of the game was, for instance, one of the aspects of the game that became a little bit controversial. So we 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 got hammered with this. For instance, some 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 of the journalists who reviewed the game actually did not like it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but players celebrated it very much. Was our decision to not do any form of hand holding on exploration. Mm-hmm. So we were very adamant, and that's something that we actually cowered away from in doing in ZenoQuest Two. The mm-hmm. original idea for ZenoQuest Two is that we would not have any form of help with the navigation of the game, and you would have to entirely figure out where to go by looking at the world around you, and not by looking either at a map or a, like a marker. Like, all modern games have this, have these uh, visual cues that help you with navigation, which are so prevalent in the design. It's kind of a shame. I can give you two pretty good examples I, I love these two games. I, I'm definitely not trying to like say anything negative about them, but I will give you two examples that I actually tried to avoid while I was playing them. So, for instance, Horizon. Uh, uh, the Horizon West. For, for, I, I played the previous one. I still haven't got Zero Dawn. Play. Zero Dawn. Mm-hmm. You have this little marker on the... Like the radar uh, bar up top? But not even the radar pop. But you have like this marker on the, the waypoint, which has a little two, two little like footstep uh, icon, and it tells you like how many footsteps away from your objective you are. Mm-hmm. And what happened to me is I found the game so beautiful, but I would find myself looking more at the little at the icon than at the whole game world around me. And it was a shame because the game is so beautiful, and you're actually. Not looking at the canyons, or the dinosaurs, the the beautiful sky. You're actually looking at a, a, a yellow icon of two little feet, and I, I feel that goes counterproductive to the whole aspect of the wonder of exploring the game. Same thing with the uh, Dead Space. Uh, no, it wasn't Dead Space. Well, I think it wasn't Dead Space, and also in, for instance, um, uh, what was the name of uh, Callisto Protocol. I, uh, no, by by Shock Infinite, that you would okay. press a button and they would show you like a a, a line on the floor, and mm-hmm. that line would direct you where you had to go. Mm-hmm. I ended up looking more at the floor than I was looking at the world because mm-hmm. you're looking constantly at a little like design marker that tells you where to go. So now, in some in- instances, I can understand that without any sort of help, it would be almost impossible to know what to do and where to do to navigate those games. Mm-hmm. But from the very get-go of the game, we said no fast traveling, no helpers. You have to explore the old way, which is I'm there. I'm being told I have to go to the mountains, and mm-hmm. the mountains are over there in the horizon, and mm-hmm. in front of me. There's a bunch of trees, or there's a ravine, or there's a, all these houses. How am I going to navigate around? And a lot of people, fair, fair and square, got lost for hours. Some of them mm-hmm. hated it. But you will not... I mean, you can go to the Steam forums and you can clearly see the amount of gratitude so many players are expressing for the fact that we actually stick to our guns and said, no, the game is explored you just have to use your instinct. You have to figure out we're not perfect. We made some mistakes. 
there were areas which were too confusing and that was the one of the most significant updates that we did to the game so i went in a very long time big tangent with regards to player feedback but hey, yeah. now i'm going to tie into it so yeah. basically we did a beta for the game and in that beta we we said okay we're, we're trying to make a game for like hardcore souls like uh, players so with the publisher we felt it was kind of okay let's ask people who are sort of like more hardcore players to go and play the game and uh for the beta we didn't get that much feedback with regards to that because usually these types of players have maybe more experience and they have more dedication, not necessarily more experience, but more dedication. They're willing to maybe play the, a game that's a bit harder. Mm -hmm. So as soon as the game launched, we were kind of shocked to see how some people were finding this, themselves lost. So we did a pretty quick post-launch update in which we started adding some markers and some critical points of the game we were figuring out where people were getting lost. And after mm -hmm. that, I feel yeah, we're reaching a point. Even even in the upcoming upcoming update, there will be a little bit more of visual markers, but not, not UI. I'm, I'm not talking about something like putting something like a, a waypoint in the UI that tells you where to go, but basically putting assets like meshes in the world that have little give you little cues of where to go. Not like we're gonna paint every like lines or arrows or stuff in the in the game. Just simply giving mm -hmm. the player a little bit more uh ideas of where to explore subtle subtle yeah subtle stuff gotcha all right that makes sense i mean certainly you run the risk of alienating some players and that's part of it but also it sounds like you're uh you had this vision that you wanted to stick to keep from the forefront and to your point about like steam forums and such a lot of gratitude's being picked up on for that decision as well yep it we're pretty amazed, but it actually stands as our highest on Steam. It's our highest, like, has the, it's our game with the highest approval rating of any that we've done. And that was a shock for us because we, we were surprised because we were doing a game that not only was being, was we were throwing like a, a curveball in terms of the way we were doing exploration, mm -hmm. the combat in the game is hard i know a lot of people on the steam forums will come and say ah, i beat it super easy and everything <laughs> but for instance rock paper shotgun published a article saying like move over elden ring clashes the new hardest game in town which i totally disagree with i couldn't beat elden ring uh damn you fire giant i'm never playing <laughs> i'm never getting past that uh i didn't have the patience uh i've been in bloodborne i beat in other uh, souls games but mm -hmm. I, I find that clash is nowhere near as difficult as from software games. And the reason I think some journalists had a very hard time with the game is because they played it like a Souls game. And that was the second thing that we fixed with the patch very quickly is that we realized that the central aspect of innovation and the combat mechanics, we were teaching it at the very beginning of the game, but not reminding it as mm -hmm. you went through the game mm -hmm. and that is the canceling mechanic so basically the one thing that separates clash from god of war dark souls or any third person action fighting game is a concept that you will see very frequently used in 2d fighting games specifically games like street fighter 
So from a basic point of view, our game is very similar to, uh, let's say, God of War. You have attacks, you have parries, you can dodge, and you have uh, maybe some specials. But in our game, when you connect an attack onto an enemy, you can cancel from that moment your the animation into a defensive action, which is a dodge, or into a special attack. So this is much more, if you think about it, it's like the focus parry, the, the focus in Street Fighter 4, where you absorb attacks and move away, or absorb attacks uh, and attack. Or, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, even even close, e even more simple, you jab into a Shoryuken. Mm -hmm. Very typical thing you'll see. And you can clearly see that players, there are play players would start struggling a little bit with the combat in the game. But you can see so many people writing comments about as soon as this part of the design clicked with me, I became like a tornado of destruction. Like I, I, I was able to like it, it, as soon as it clicked, I was able to understand that this game is meant to be played different to other games, mm -hmm. and uh, the people for which the combat mechanic clicks, I think they find the game much easier than any of the from software games. They 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 basically become very proficient with the with, with the combat mechanics, and at that point, the game isn't that hard. So that was another mistake that we made. Again, we tested out the game. The whole combat, the whole canceling me mechanic was introduced in the beta. We mm -hmm. did probably get some complaints about it, but not enough that we would visualize it and clearly anticipate that we needed to remind players. So what we did is in the game over screen, we added like this sort of short videos, which would clearly show uh, the case, the perfectly like like the 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 case, the case in which you're supposed to to to, to use this mechanic like an enemy is going to it is winding up a punch you actually attack him and as soon as your attack connects you can just press one button and you dodge out of the of the incoming attack and mm -hmm. you're safe but if you don't do that you're going to get smacked and basically mm -hmm. if you forget about that um yeah the the game becomes Probably a lot harder. A lot harder. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I am anxious to try approaching it like that. That is a <laughs> that is something I need to I need to do myself. Um, I did have another question that was written in on Twitter. Uh, this one came from Angry Tuttle, who was curious about the uh, Clash soundtrack. Uh, original soundtrack is credited as uh, Austral Music, but no specific choirs or artists are mentioned. Uh, Angry Tuttle is asking a question to which I don't know. Anything about? Could you talk a little about the music and soundtrack of Ch uh, Clash? Sure, sure, sure. Um, okay, so everyone who's like fan of the studio knows that we've been with one composer forever, like mm -hmm. since the studio started. Which is his name is Patricio Meneses, and the only difference is that uh, if you if you actually look for the soundtrack on YouTube, his name is very prominently there. Austral music became the he kind of uh, transitioned from doing it at a personal as a personal title. He's working with a uh, like a colleague, and they s sort of decided to like make a studio name. But it's mm -hmm. him. It's basically Patricio Meneses, which has been the composer who did the music for the previous Xenoclash games, Rock of Ages, every single title we've ever made. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I would say this is definitely, I would say it's uh, the best work he's done. And uh, it was one of the most challenging uh challenging um, development of music that we did for any of the games because unlike previous titles in this one our model to what we wanted to achieve was uh, what they had done in the near games I, I, I was very moved by the music in Nier Automata mm-hmm. and uh, so we decided to show this to Patricio and tell him, look at how this game, what it gets from the music, how much it elevates the, the, the title. And that meant something that we hadn't done be- before, which is live performances, singers actually getting voice talent to actually sing for, the, for many of the tracks. And that was a big challenge and it required a lot of investigation, a lot of uh, extra effort to get it done. But uh, I'm very, really, really happy with the result. I, I mean, a lot of people have made, mentioned the soundtrack as being some of one of the best parts of the game. That's awesome. That's cool. Very nice, man. Uh, well, Carlos, I think as we wind down, uh, one of the things I want to ask you is, as we, we close out is, uh, if players are new to your game, what's the one thing that you would want them to notice or uh, know going in? I think I'll, I'll 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 link in this to one of the like something that Andres, who's the, the my my twin brother and, and also one of the co lead designers for the project, said when he finished when we finished the game, like uh, because it's it's it, 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 it stick with me. He said, I mean, we've been talking about the the graphics, the visual style. We've been talking about the music, the design, what makes the game different. Uh, and this told me something, which I think is true, actually. Um, he's, he said, like, the, the the exploration is great. I love I love the combat mechanics. Um, I the visual style and everything. But if there's one thing that would keep me playing this game is the story, the characters, the relationship between the protagonist and the boy. There is, I think, uh, I think this is one of the most successful um, stories that we've told in a game before, and that the performances performances of the actors, the writing, uh, Jonas Kiratze, who is the Talos principal, was a writer for this, and uh, he... He did a magnificent job also directing the actors who did the roles for the for the whole game. And I, I definitely think that also a little bit like the Xeno Clash games, like a lot of people see it from a from afar and say, uh, I mean those Xeno Clash games are all about crazy punchy punching crazy bird people in the face, and they look like totally bonkers. But the people who actually play them. They're super invested with the character developments, and uh, I, I, I'll, if you tell, like, a lot of people have had a very intense reaction to the ending of the game. I won't say more to spoil anything, okay. but uh, yeah, I, I, it is a game that we're. Yeah, I think it's one of the high points of the game. Definitely. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, Carlos Bordeaux of Ace Team out of Chile, uh, Clash Artifacts of Chaos. Uh, congratulations on your launch. Uh, let people know where they can find you, where the game's available. Uh, and thank you again for your time and joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and Twitter, I think we're the Ace Team. Well, you can find us on uh, Steam, just typing down uh, Clash Artifacts of Chaos. Uh, I'm Carlos Bordel. You can also find me on Twitter. And well, I hope those of you who haven't played the game or haven't seen anything, uh, like go and and try it out. I think you'll definitely um, be surprised. That that's for sure. Very cool. Well, listeners, remember you guys can check out the show on YouTube as well uh, as support us over on Patreon. Thank you again, Carlos. Have a wonderful rest of your day, man.